Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. It's all change again this week. Andrew Jack, who hosted last week's show from the World AIDS Conference in Vienna, is away on a well-deserved holiday. There's no contribution from Science Magazine, and I'm back in the studio. So too is our regular guest, Diana Garnham, who is Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. What have you been doing over the last week or two? We've had a, a very busy week coping with the launch of a technician register this week, which is uh, due to try and attract young people to study to become science technicians. And there's a shortage of those, isn't there? A huge there? shortage. I'm hoping we'll talk about those later. And our special guest today is Nigel Gaymond, who took over last January as Chief Executive of the UK Bioindustry Association, or BIA. Welcome, Nigel. Thank you very much, Clive. Biotech is going to be at the heart of this week's podcast, and we'll also be talking about the use of animals for research, both in universities and in industry. But before we get on to animals, let's start with bioscience. And Nigel, perhaps we can start by asking you a little bit about why, after 25 years in the US, you decided to move back to the UK and take charge of the BIA. Well, I will freely admit it was not something that I had thought about doing coming back uh, from the US. I had lived in Boston for 23, 24 years, and then latterly was living in Southern California, right by the ocean in San Diego. There are not many better spots in the world. But I had um, known of BIA literally since its inception. Louis de Gama, its original CEO, was through my office when I was working at the British Consulate in Boston in the late 80s, making a pest of himself, as you should do when you're starting up a new association, getting as much help as he could for nothing. So I had watched BIA grow over the years and uh, had periodic involvement with it. And so it was one of those moments you perhaps don't expect when the headhunters come calling and then suddenly you're asked, would you be interested? And it just resonated. And seven months on, how's it going? I have a great staff, much better than I even envisaged uh, when I started. I am probably more excited about the role now than when I took it. No regrets at all and feel I'm almost on a bit of a crusade to get this industry to where I think it can be. Well, now that you're in the heart of it rather than observing it from mm -hmm. across the Atlantic, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of biotech in the UK? No, no doubt the strength is our um, scientific pedigree, our heritage. And, uh, we've always been a tremendously productive country when it comes to, to the sciences. I think we have over the years also developed now a much better management pool than we've had perhaps in the past. The weaknesses still remain obviously finance. Somehow we've got to do a better job at articulating our industry with the city and we're certainly looking at uh, the ways BIA can help in that regard. And I think perhaps 
we haven't been as international as perhaps we should have. I was interested that you said that the management was better. Are those people with management, have they got science backgrounds mainly? Most of them will have science backgrounds, not all though. I mean, I don't have a science background. I'm, I rush to add quickly. I actually was a linguistics major who has sort of almost by accident found myself in the biotech industry in its infancy in the late 80s in Boston and sort of grew with it, but have been curious enough to learn about the science. And I think you'll find, though, that still most of the people involved in the industry will have PhDs or will have a science background. Increasingly, though, you will find others who are like me who have been curious and have come into it. One thing that you've been talking about, interestingly, not here yet, but publicly, is using the great British expat (laughs) base in the US in the same way as the Irish and the Indians use on use their scientists in America, both for the research side and for the business side. How can we tap in on the UK diaspora? It's been a bugbear of mine, I must admit, for a long time, going back to the late 90s. This all was started with some work that I did for Scottish Enterprise years ago in finding their original expats from the industry, and I was struck at both the eminence and the seniority these people had risen to and so on. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, this is a British thing, actually. It's tough to go into a leading bioscience company in in the US and not find Brits at senior levels within those, within those companies, but equally also not find Brits senior professors in some of the leading U, U, US universities. And that's true in Canada, it's true in Australia, it's true in, in New Zealand. And I felt that when you looked at India particularly, uh, who had done a phenomenal effort through their industry entrepreneurs network. They had done a fantastic job at actually leveraging that to good effect back in the in India. I see that we have singularly failed to really engage with our expats and we're missing a trick. The level of talent that we have abroad, and I know that the desire is there also to give back. It's interesting that both the leading two trade associations in the biosciences, ABPI and ourselves, are both being now run by expats who have come back after spending spells in the, in the US. So I think we've got a lot to gain, and, and I think we're missing a trick. Well, one domestic issue having to tackle with here is government spending cuts. You yes. talked about the shortage of city funding for biotech. There's soon going to be a shortage of public funding for bioscience as a whole. Mm-hmm. How are you fighting the corner when 25% cuts are in order in government budgets? Well, we certainly will be hopefully fighting so that the reality of a 25% cut doesn't come to fruition. We have certainly made our submission to the Comprehensive Spending Review and arguing pretty vociferously about trying to maintain science budgets as a competitive measure. I mean, if you look at what other countries are doing, uh, they are investing. The Frances, the Germanys and the US uh, particularly are really investing heavily in science. We've seen the spectacular progress in India and China and as they invest as well. If we are to compete in this world going forward, it's very important that we try and manage this. Now, are we aware there have got to be some cuts in the system? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, we've, we've got no doubts about that. But should we be not uh, balancing that with some hope for the future? And should not the science budget be something that hopefully gets protected a bit because it really is about our future? Can I ask a question about the knowledge networks? I mean, if mm-hmm. you're going to... Uh, build on the expat community and Mm -hmm. I think we had a signal from David Willits that it was worth us 
finding structures that looked to research activity internationally rather than doing all our own basic research and developing that for production in the UK. (laughs) Would there be merit in a knowledge network being funded as a knowledge network across the biosciences expat community? Sounds like a great idea to me. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's all about networks in today's world. The world is shrinking and the ability to leverage those assets that we have, given that that community is by and large, pretty much going to be very pro doing something back for their country. I'd like to move the discussion on now to our second topic for the week, the use of animals in research. The annual statistics released just now by the Home Office show 3.6 million scientific procedures carried out on animals during 2009. That sounds a lot, but in fact it represents a slight fall, about 1% down on the previous year. The figures break the pattern of sustained rises in animal experiments over the past few years, as scientists have been doing more and more work with genetically modified rodents. Nigel, what do you make of the figures? I'm interested to know what's sort of behind that drop. Is it a drop in in certain types of research? From our industry's point of view, animal research is just a fundamental part of what we do, and it is something that is mandated by law we have to do as part of our getting a product to market. Do we hope that there will be ongoing work to finding alternatives so that that it gets diminished? Of course. Diana, you've been involved over the years in responding to animal experiments and animal defenders, so-called. What do you think is happening now? I think 1% is a very small drop, and I think we would probably say they've stayed more or less level. Mm -hmm. But there's some interesting changes within the numbers. I mean, for example, a fall in the use of fish, which is one of the growing areas of alternatives to other animals. Most people and, probably don't realise that fish are counted in these statistics. Well, no, and fish actually is a very interesting area because I think it flags up for the public non-health research. Yes. Uh, we tend to focus when we're talking about animal research about um, medicines and treatments for conditions. But actually fish is one of the major areas where we're looking at sustainability, water quality, toxins in the water, and also food security. And I suspect that in the future we'll start to see a shift as we start to do more experiments on the right types of breeds that we can farm, what are the best conditions for for farming, particularly, for example, fish farming. So these are areas that are relatively new. The UK science in this area is developing. It's quite strong. Our marine science is a growing area of interest. And, of course, food from marine waters is a growing area of interest as we try and feed ourselves. So I think it's going to be a changing landscape. It was good, though, wasn't it, to see a drop in non-human primates. I mean, these are relatively small numbers, but it is down. Quite an interesting increase in the GM mice, which Mm -hmm. is the the biggest area and one where the UK's research is very strong. It was quite a priority, Nigel, for your predecessor fighting animal extremists. The issue's gone a bit quieter now. Mm -hmm. Is it something you think you're going to have to speak up on and make sure that your member companies are open and transparent in what they're doing? I hope not, (laughs) but um, it's something that we will always be ready for and watching and clearly will do so um, as required. And I do think the industry as a whole, I'm I'm talking about pharmaceutical companies, probably more than biotech companies, because the big pharma companies do much more work with animals. Are you happy with their attitudes? I think we've made enormous progress in the way we speak about this issue over the last five years. But I think we can never let up about speaking 
on it. It's very important that these this data is published and that it is independent, that it's verifiable. These are very important underpinning aspects to the debate. I actually think we should talk about it more. Mm-hmm. And the word that I would use is normalise the discussion about this type of research within the whole landscape of science research. Well, I think that's all we can talk about today about animals in in research and I hope we can return to the subject in a calm way rather than because (laughs) there's god forbid an upsurge in extremist attacks on scientists working with animals. Before we go I'd like to return to Diana and a remark she made at the beginning about a technician register. What are you thinking of there? Well there's been a lot of focus on actually uh, recruiting and increasing the numbers of graduate scientists but actually the evidence seems to suggest that there are people with um, lower level skills, technician skills, where there are big shortages. Now that we know there are big shortages in engineering but nobody has actually collected the data to see what the shortages are in the science fields. So the previous government announced a desire to uh, explore this and have launched a technician council, which the Science Council will be part of. And we're doing some research now looking at what is the call for the non-graduate skill base Mm -hmm. for scientists within the science-based industries. And these will be people who might be working, for example, in animal laboratories, but they might also be working within the NHS, for example, in NHS labs. They might be working in pathology, forensics, science they could be working in the biotech industry but we need to know what sort of skills background they need and then once we've done all that encourage more and more people to aim for those jobs so this is just the very first part of a three-year strategy to increase those numbers i think that really is all we have time for today ft science will be back next week so diana and nigel thank you very much for your contributions today and thank you for listening FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.